Good morning to everyone as we meet again together. Thankful to be able to do so. Last week, in the first six verses of 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul made two main points, and we need to remember these as we go forward. First, Paul claimed the Corinthian believers themselves were his letter of recommendation written by Christ, which then was more than enough to validate his apostolic credentials. Of course, the odd thing about this claim was that some of the people in the Corinthian church were the very ones questioning Paul's credentials of being an apostle in the first place. But Paul directed their attention to what God had done in these people as a whole, as a church, through the work of Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. Only God could have done any of this. The changes were that great. Were there still multiple issues among the believers in this church? Well, yes. But it was obvious to all that while growth in the Lord was not perfectly consistent. There was growth, there was understanding, and there was a deepening dependence growing as well. The second main point in the first six verses of chapter 3, Paul made crystal clear that the confidence Christians have through Christ is only possible because the Christian sufficiency only comes from God, not from anything in themselves. In verses 5 and 6, we read, Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us competent or sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Folks, after all these years, we've got to remember in the days ahead this point. Our confidence that we have through Christ with whatever comes, whatever we face, we will face together. But we have to face it knowing that our sufficiency comes only through Christ. And we must keep that preeminent in our thoughts and minds as, as we gather, because we are in good hands. In the rest of chapter 3, Paul begins to compare and contrast the Old and the New Covenants. You can already see that in the verses we just read. How does Paul do this? How Paul does this is extremely helpful to every believer. And this is not as long and thorough as another similarly themed passage in Hebrews 7, but the focus of this Corinthian text is different than it is in Hebrews. In Hebrews, the sacrificial system of the Old Covenant is compared and contrasted with Christ's one-time, once-for-all sacrifice of himself 
in the new covenant. That's what's emphasized in Hebrews. But here in 2 Corinthians 3, Paul focuses on the work of the Holy Spirit instead of on Christ's sacrificial work. So he is comparing the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, with the New Covenant, especially in this regard concerning the Holy Spirit. Now, why does he do this? Well, one idea is that Paul is dealing with a church which has many issues understanding the Holy Spirit's indwelling and work within them. All you have to do is remember some of the issues that we went through in 1 Corinthians and what was out of control to realize, yes, they had some issues understanding the Holy Spirit's work. They were so focused on outward appearances and works that they tended to miss Jesus' point that our hearts are the source of what speech and actions come from us, which he says in places like Matthew, Mark chapter 7. Paul has already said that God has given his Holy Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Chapter 1, verse 22. This Corinthian church is the letter of recommendation from Christ for Paul, not written with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God on the tablets of their human hearts. And the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. All of that was in the first six verses. Now he's pulling it together. And in our passage today, in verses 7 and 8, he compares the glory that came with the ministry of death in the Old Covenant to the even more glorious ministry of the Holy Spirit in the New Covenant. And in the process of this comparing and contrasting the glory that was present in the Old Covenant with the glory seen in the New Covenant, we learn a lot about God and ourselves. So one of our goals today is to not get lost in the, rep in the repetition of certain words like glory and just shaking our heads. What we need to do is what do we learn about God here and ourselves as we read this? So in reading today's passage, I'm going to begin three verses earlier from the text we're looking at today to help us see the ongoing context of what Paul's writing. If you're able, please stand as I read 2 Corinthians in chapter 3. I'm going to begin at verse 4 and go through verse 11. Be reading from the English Standard Version. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us. But our sufficiency is from God, who has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face, because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, 
Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory had come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory much more, will what is permanent have glory. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Now, the first thing to notice in verse 7 and following is that Paul is referring to some important events in whose life? In the life of Moses in the Old Testament. So in order to understand the points Paul is making, we have to know the story. So here is a short summary. Now, I know that most of you know these stories. But let me ask you a question. Can we count on people who are just now considering Christ and maybe visiting? Or maybe your background even missed some of these stories? Yes, we can. So that's why I'm going over them. If you already know them, don't tune out. Because Paul is using this to make some very important points. Moses was called by God to lead the Israelites out of Egypt and also was appointed by God to be the mediator of the Old Covenant. And in this capacity, Moses represented God to Israel and Israel to God. When he met God, he met, when the people met God at Mount Sinai, the place where by God's initiative, the old covenant relationship was made. That all is uh, explained in Deuteronomy chapter 5. Paul went up that mountain and into the awesome presence of God to receive the law from him, while the people remained at a distance. Now, one feature of this awesome event concerned the effect it had on Moses himself. When he came down the mountain, his face was glowing with radiant light. And this was due to his being in God's presence, the God of whom the psalmist writes in Psalm 104.2, is covered with light as with a garment, and whom Moses had already encountered at a brightly burning what? Bush in Exodus 3, verses 2 through 4. The Israelites were scared to death when they saw Moses' face. So Moses placed a veil over it and kept it there all the time he was in the camp of Israel. And when he went back up the mountain into God's presence again, he removed this veil. The Jews of New Testament times were greatly influenced by the Pharisees who taught in the synagogues in every town where the Jews settled in the Holy Land. 
The Pharisees emphasized the great importance of the law. So the Jews were extremely interested in Moses and God's law in the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch. The Pharisees also stressed the importance of the oral law, referred to as the traditions of the fathers, which they believed was given to Moses as well to be transmitted down through later generations. What we need to realize is that the Jews in Corinth who had become Christians would know these traditions as well. As would the Gentile Christians who had first worshipped at the local synagogue because they had come to believe in the God of Israel. Paul uses this story of Moses to illustrate differences between the Old and New Covenants. The old made through Moses, the new through Christ. We need to remember and notice a second thing. That is, the other times human beings were brought into God's very presence and experienced the glorious light that radiated from him, from his very being. We've already mentioned Moses' two encounters, the burning bush, and Mount Sinai. Now, if you were paying attention in Sunday school when you were a kid, if you had that opportunity, you should know what these other two are. We all should. What about Jesus' transfiguration? Also on top of a mountain, witnessed by Peter, James, and John. Now, Paul was obviously not there, but he had to have had come to know these details. And Jesus had commanded the three who were with him something very interesting. He said to those three men, tell no one what you've seen until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. This event was an anticipation of the resurrection glory of Jesus. And it emphasizes the importance of the cross. Right after this, Jesus led the disciples down the mountain and set his face, which is a neat way to hear it explained in the, in the Bible, set his face to go to Jerusalem and face the cross. And what about Paul's encounter with the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. Paul tells King Agrippa of his conversion to Christianity. This is one of the best descriptions of this whole event in Acts 26, verses 12 through 18. Let me just read that for us, and you'll see right off the bat why we're reading it. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests, why was he going? He'd already explained this. To arrest and have Christians executed. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, 
Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goats. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Now, as you saw as we read today's passage, the word glory appears ten times in only five verses. Now, this is obviously the key word in this section, so it would probably be important for us to know what it means and how it's used. The idea behind the Old Testament Hebrew word that the New Testament Greek word replaces is weight. There is no weightier subject than God himself. And glory became a way of describing the weightiness of God. Especially, and this is what's key, especially in his self-revelation to humans he created. In other words, it's a way to speak of God as he has graciously shown himself or revealed himself to us human beings. We should immediately realize that there is so much more to God than what he has shown us. But what he has revealed is his glory. Now there's another connected word to glory that we've already mentioned, and they pretty much go together every time we see it. And what's that? Light. An Old Testament way of using this was what we call what we saw in Psalm 104, that God is said to clothe himself in light. A New Testament example is in 1 Timothy 6. Verse 16, where Paul speaks this way, he says, writes, The King of kings and Lord of lords, who dwells in what? Unapproachable light. One commentator identifies a paradox about light. And that light is both the medium by which we are able to see everything, but it's also, if it's in excess, it can blind us so that we can't see anything. Now, why is this so cool to hear? Well, the question and answer here, is there any better way to describe the encounter that human beings have with God? By God's grace, in these examples we've looked at, the people have seen 
and yet at the same time realize how much they can't see. Isn't that beautiful? Yes, the word glory is much weightier than any of us realize. And of course, this week, actually the week before, we've had something else on our minds. Put Frida in this context. She's seen this. She is in the presence of this glory. Well, the whole point here is to see the greater glory of the new covenant. And Paul begins in verses 7 through 9 by commenting about Moses descending from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of stone which had the Ten Commandments on them. His face was shining so brightly that Exodus 34.30 says that they were afraid to come near him. So Paul makes the point that if such glory attended the giving of the law, which brought death because it pointed out the sin all people were enslaved to, then how much more glorious is the ministry of the Holy Spirit that brings righteousness? This is exactly what the prophet Jeremiah spoke of in Jeremiah 31. Verses 31 through 33. See if these verses sound familiar. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke Though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law, where? Within them. I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Now many of us, are probably asking the question, how is it, again, that the Old Covenant, which had God as its author as much as he was the author of the New Covenant, how is it, again, that the Old Covenant brought death? We have to get this right. If we get this wrong, we'll never understand what's going on in our own lives. Well, it's not because of any defect in the law, because the law reflects the completely holy perfection of God. Instead, it's because of the defect in us. The Creator's law, the Old Covenant, rightly imposes conditions on human beings. But human beings cannot fulfill these because of their own willful rebellion, their own sinfulness, our own sinfulness. The new covenant, on the other hand, brings eternal life in Christ. How? Well, listen to how Paul explains this in Galatians chapter 3, starting at verse 10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it's written, 
Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified by, before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. Quoting from the Old Testament. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. All of them. Breaking one law is breaking the law. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, Paul writes in verse 13 of Galatians 3, by becoming a curse for us. In the first three verses of the chapter we're in, Paul emphasized that the Corinthian believers' hearts were changed, which he said was the main evidence of the validity of his ministry of the gospel from Christ. Also of note is how Paul starts off presenting the ideas of death versus life. And then in verse 9, he lets death versus life morph into the ideas of condemnation versus what? Righteousness. God condemns sin. And death is the penalty or the result of sin, while life is the result of receiving righteousness through what Christ has done for us, his own righteousness. So if you put 9, verses 9 and 10 together, we see this. For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceeds it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. Do you see the point? The glory of what Christ has accomplished is so much brighter, is so much more glorious, it's so much better revelation of who God is. Totally now, it's completed, which is what he's getting ready to say, that it makes it look like the old is just completely not glorious at all, even though it was and is as we read it. Now, don't get lost in the words and repetitions. What is Paul suggesting here? Just that, that simply the glory of God is much more fully revealed under the new covenant than the old covenant. Why? Because the Old Covenant showed God's judgment while the New Covenant manifests its grace, His grace. Now, this doesn't mean at all that there is now no revelation of judgment, simply because so many refuse God's grace in Christ and will suffer great judgment. On the other side of this truth, does this mean that there was no experience of God's grace under the Old Covenant? Of course not. Just think about the last 12 months, I mean two months going through Ruth. You could entitle that book, God's Grace on Display in the Old Testament. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, etc., etc., etc. 
The point here is that even the giving of the law at Sinai <clears throat> did not rule out administering grace as God saw fit. We don't get to organize the Bible like we want it. We've got to see how God decided to reveal himself all the way through. And this is what he's done, what Paul is explaining. The principles of salvation by grace are, however, much more fully and more clearly revealed now through Christ. And it's the legal factors in the Old Covenant that Paul has in mind in this text. Just because this was what was so prominent, especially in the minds of the Jewish believers. So the very term of new covenant clearly implies that the former covenant has been supplanted, which is a major theme of the book of Hebrews. In Christ, a new era has come, which is also the era of the Spirit. And Paul makes it very clear that the new covenant can not be replaced. You can't go back either. Look what he says in verse 11. For is what was being brought to an end, if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more what is permanent have glory. Permanent. And this is absolutely vital for us to know, for us to understand and apply in every area of life. And the younger you are in this congregation, the more time you have to do that. Because that's what this life is about. It's what your purpose really is. In this new covenant, God has accomplished everything that needed to be done. No more provisional anything for salvation and walking with God. Everything's complete, perfect, and final. Christ's work to save was finished on the cross. And when the time is right, he will return. And you heard Art pray for the Lord to come. We can live now, we can breathe now, we can act now out of what is certain and sure and already done. You don't have to go searching for any new anything, which seems to be the main goal of modernity and post-modernity. What's new and exciting? This is not a new way to do things in history. The Greeks, and we know from Paul's experience when he was a missionary, that's all those guys did in Athens. It was like the newest thing. That's all they wanted to talk about, and that's what they did. You see, nothing's really changed in that regard. Maybe that's why it's so hard to just trust in what we know Christ has already accomplished and not think we need this, and we need this, and we need this, something extra. You don't. You need to know what he did and learn how to trust in that. In other words, our faith is sure. Nothing more has to be accomplished to validate it. Our calling is sure. 
Because Christ is reigning in heaven above and the Holy Spirit lives in us. Our hope is sure. We are in Christ and nothing can snatch us out of his hand. Nothing. Our purpose is sure. We belong to the king. We are his. He is our great shepherd. Our future is sure. He already has a place prepared for those he came to save. Some of us have moved so many times we can't even think about it anymore. When we move there, no problem. He's got it already fixed up. You don't have to call anybody to come do anything. It's glory. Do you understand this? This is something that we, most of us, have under, we understand. Because we spend our whole lives fixing up what we've got here. We're going to find out that his rooms, his mansions, eternity, it's fine. Another example of thinking about what Frida is in right now. I explained yesterday at the service, I don't know if everybody heard this, what she has written on her gravestone. Listen to the tense of the verb. On her gravestone is, my life was hidden in Christ. I just went, that is... Let's steal that. My life was hidden in Christ, which is part of Scripture. Our future is sure. He already has a place prepared. Now, if we just go through that, our faith is sure, our calling is sure, our hope is sure, our purpose is sure, our future is sure. Every time I get bent out of shape, I'm not trusting one of these things. Do we get that? That's our problem. We need to know God's revelation to us in Christ so well and rehearse it so much in our minds and hearts that we instantly go here. Our faith is sure. Our calling is sure. Our hope is sure. Our purpose is sure. Our future is sure. Then when we gather, we can hurt, feel the pain, the circumstances that cause us all heartache. And what happens? We encourage each other in the hope of Christ, not in this or that or whatever. And that's how we grow in our relationship with the Lord. Would you bow with me? And please join along. I'm going to close us with the Lord's Prayer. In other words, you can pray it out loud. I know that the versions are so many now that it's even hard to do. I'm going to do the ESV version just to kind of keep it, and it'll be close. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. 
and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. You may stand for our benediction.